Monk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Cody Vladimir Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk, sitting here at the Pillsbury Tasting Room in Wilcox with James Callahan from Rune Wines. And of course, the first thing that comes to my mind is that famous segment in Dune where uh, Paul Trades goes, Arrakis, Dune, Desert Planet. So it's Wilcox, Rune, Desert Wine. That's what we have here. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're drinking a, a Syrah blend, but um, James is doing a lot of really cool things with Rune, and that's kind of why uh, we're here gathered tonight to kind of hang out, drink some wine, talk Rune wines. One of the things that I find have found to be really cool is that you're one of the few guys that's using native yeasts, um, especially for your whites and your co-ferments, rather than the store, you know, commercial yeast for your whites. You know, the both uh, add, they're both paints in a palette, you know. They both add certain things to a wine. Um, native yeast adds something, it's like adding a paint that's not been seen before. And you can argue that a native yeast is going to be taken over by a commercial yeast eventually. There's been arguments to that before. Um, but regardless, they have their own character. They have their own life. They have their own personality that really shines through. And when you blend them, uh, which is the point, the point is to kind of create complexity. We could all just use one yeast. We could all just use one barrel. We could all use one varietal. But what you're really trying to do is make complexity. And when you blend them with other things and create a blend that is unique, you have something that's very hard to replicate, something that's very unique, and something that shows the vintage to its fullest. Would you argue that it's also a better expression of tovar? Uh Native yeast, I would say yes. A commercial yeast would tend to kind of hinder that, because native yeast, you're using what's there. And... As I said earlier, some people would argue that native yeasts are actually commercial yeast, but the re- the reality is, I think, is that things go a lot slower. Things go much more in pace with nature, and there might be one yeast that takes over in the end. But the reality is, is that something that's native to the soil is going to start it and going to do most of the work and. Maybe by the end, it might die out and something that's non-native might take over. And Tawar definitely has something to do with that. So where did you get the idea to use native yeast versus these commercial yeasts, by and large? Uh, The idea did not come from anything. But actually, to be honest, I've never worked with native yeast before I came to Arizona. So it's been about seven years before Arizona for me. And nothing to do with native yeast. And it started off in twelve. And uh, some of the grapes came in warm and started fermenting on their own. And I decided just to let it go. And the results were exemplary. And something that was really, really enjoyable, something that was really unique, something that was something that has never been seen before. I mean, despite being from Arizona, it was something that had a lot of characters and something that, you know, being from California myself, not from California, but being working in California and then coming here was very unique. And I decided to stick with it. So you were working for a while in California. What's your sort of winemaking history, as it were? Ah, winemaking history. So I started off in 2005 when I was just graduated of college with a history degree from ASU. And 
was working at Domino's Pizza. <laughs> and then uh, surprisingly, I said, hey, you know, I want to go try to make more money. I was making about 14 or $15 an hour back then with tips and everything. And I was like, you know, I want to really try something new, see what I can do. And I just graduated from college and like you're making, you're delivering pizzas. You want to do something different, right? So started working at the James Hotel as a busser, took a, took a pay cut. It's now the current day uh, Saguaro. Before that, it was a Mondrian. I was making about 10 or $11 an hour. But it was, I wanted to be a server. I wanted to make good money. I wanted to sell good wine. I wanted to learn all about the industry at that time. And started learning my Italian varietals and really got proficient with them. And slowly but surely, I became <laughs> more knowledgeable, despite my age, uh, than the people I was working with. And I wanted to become a server. And that thing seemed like the best thing to do for me at the time to make money. But I was such a good busser <laughs> that they wouldn't promote me to a server, I think. So I had to go travel afar. So I went to the Grand Teton National Park and served for a while. And then came back in t- late 2006 and started working at Cafe Bo in Tempe and House of Tricks in Tempe subsequently. And both places uh, exposed me to a a wine list that was fantastic and where I really cultivated my passion for wine and realizing that I like to work with my hands and I had remodeled houses before and done lots of work with my hands before and it just kind of went together. I started working at Pure Vine, which is uh, one of the first ur- the first urban winery in Arizona uh, under John Allen, John Allen Burtner, which was my boss, the winemaker, and he taught me a lot about the artistry of wine and kind of tasting and sampling and everything I, I needed to go along with my sommelier pursuits, which I was doing at the time. And it was just a, it was a really good experience working there, having all this brand new equipment, you know, had my own forklift to drive around. And here I am, some guy with no forklift experience, you know, greenhorn, uh, freshly out of college, no idea how to do anything. No idea how to work hard. You know, this you don't get taught that in college. You don't get taught how to. You don't. You're not taught how to work hard. You're taught how to think and and learn. You're not taught how to work. And you know, this is someone that broke me into being a man and working hard. And uh, it was a good time. We learned that and learned how to taste wine. Learned how to appreciate wine. And from there, got the influence, got the support to go and reach beyond Arizona. So I traveled to New Zealand, well, Washington first, uh, Walla Walla, Washington, then New Zealand, and then back to California, where I spent two years uh, with Costa Brown, which is a Pinot producer out of Sebastopol. And from there, went to startup Eridus as a winemaker in 2012, uh, and worked there for about a year, and then decided to start my own label, which has been my dream for a long time. And it's called Rune. And now we're based out of Sonoida, but we make our wines in Wilcox out of any grapes that we can buy, the best grapes we can buy. So question one relating to that. Um, as a history guy myself, um, we both come from that same shared background of being history majors, which has definitely influenced both, you know, kind of how I approach wine and how I think about wine. Uh, do you find that your experience with history has done the same to you, influencing your approach to wine, and if so, how? Uh, most definitely. You know, what 
what college teach taught me and uh, what history taught me is critical thinking. And critical thinking is the ability to look back at something and question. And that in itself is a huge skill because I can say, hey, I really like this wine. Why did I like it? Hey, I really didn't like this wine. Why did I not like it? What do I like about whatever? And with those, uh, with that ability to discern between good and bad, right and wrong, uh, if you will, I think there's something there to be learned as far as developing your own style, because you have to have a really good understanding about what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And if you don't have that, you cannot be successful in this industry. And that, for me, is where the history degree and the critical thinking came in the came into play, because it's it's all about just knowing what you really like and knowing what you want to accomplish and and understanding how to get there. It's key. So, question B. Um... Rune, where did you come up with the name, and what's kind of the uh, the idea behind it? Well, the name is a... Uh, I get that question a lot, actually. <laughs> My mom tries to explain it to her friends, and they have no idea. <laughs> yeah, the reality is, so, uh, Rune is an ancient character in a language. The language is called Elder Forthark. It's a Viking language, and it's based off of romantic uh, languages. It's a romantic language. The characters are set as such that they can be inscribed in stone without paper. So they're very angular. There's nothing that's, there's no round curves in the language. It's all about kind of, imagine if you're writing your name in stone, you would not use a curve. You would use straight lines. That's the way the language is written. And it's a language that's been forgotten. It's a language that's been pushed aside through domination from other superior forces, through military conquest within the last couple thousand years. And, uh, you know, it might be a pinpoint in human existence or, or the existence of the earth, but it's a large factor in our existence. You know, we live today with only a few thousand years worth of history behind us, whereas the earth is millions of years old. You know, we can just draw upon what we know. But regardless, we're trying to showcase what is unknown, what might not be allowed to be, not necessarily allowed to be, but what not, what not, what might not be known by the majority of people. It's all about saying and talking about things that are different, things that are unique, and things that might be forthcoming or changing. And that's the idea behind Rune. It's just about doing things differently, doing things uniquely, and doing things to make them to make the product better. So along with Rune, you make uh, the wines for Pillsbury, correct? That's correct. Uh, Sam and I, we work together uh, we've actually started working together since 2012 when I worked at Eridus, and he's a good guy, and we've, we have a lot of great ideas together. He's a very intellectual human being, and he's one that will share his ideas at a drop of a hat, and, you know, like anyone that's creative, if you start spawning a creative motion, other people will pick on, and it'll become greater, and that's what Sam does. He, uh, he drops the hat, and we pick up and try to figure out what the hell to do from there. <laughs> and he's a he's a brilliant human being from that standpoint. And I like to say uh, I love working with him. And he's also great on the other end, of, uh, on the other end of the spectrum. You know, we can I can come with ideas and he can take it from there. And you know, we're just both very creative people, and it works really well together because we can do things. We can actually make creativity come to life, and that's a rarity too. Because it's one to be creative, but it's also Another thing to be creative but yet productive, and that's what we are. You're making your wines in Wilcox, tasting in Sonoida. How's that working? I mean, 
it's it's kind of I mean a lot of wineries in Arizona are making their wines or growing their grapes here in Wilcox and then selling them elsewhere uh, Sonoida or Passions Hellers, for example, is making their wines down here, selling them in the Ver- in the Verde. From the pictures I've seen on Facebook, you've got a pretty simple yet fantastic setup down there. Well, you know, Wilcox is an interesting place, and Sonoida is an interesting place, and Verde Valley is an interesting place. They all have something to add, and you can't really judge one over the other because you know each terroir is better for certain things than other things, and. Wilcox, for instance, is great for Rhone varietals. I really love it. We get a lot of complexity. We get a lot of depth. Um, we get a lot of flavor, aromatics, color, intensity. It's great here. Fantastic. Especially compared to other places in the country. And, you know, we're, we are at the forthcoming... Uh, we are at the, the first bit, like the, the tip of the spear of what is yet to come for Wilcox and, and for Arizona wine right now. Things are really good. The vineyards are getting better every year. It's fantastic. When you look at things, uh, vineyards in Sonoida, they've been around a little bit longer. The The vineyards tend to show a little bit more dusty character, earthier character, and that's where I have my tasting room, and I have some land there, and that's where I'm going to plant my first grapes. Uh, I'll, I'm going to do that because my soil there is a little bit more rich in limestone. Yeah, as Gordon Dutt and as Sonoida vineyards would like to say, it's a... Uh, you know, similar to Burgundy, despite terroir-wise or soil-wise, yes, climate-wise, no. But I would say as long as the soil's chalky, it holds a lot of water, which is great for us here in Arizona because chalk is like a sponge. You can think of it as a sponge. It, when you have this rich organic topsoil and you have this chalky sponge underneath, you know, a foot underneath, when the monsoons come, it's going to hold that water. It's not going to let it drain through through the rocks, through the sand, through the gravel. It's going to hold it. And that sponge effect is going to keep the water there throughout the whole hot, dry, hot growing season. And it's going to help provide the grapevines a substantial source of water throughout the whole season, albeit minimal. And the struggling of the grapevines through that soil to try to grasp whatever water they can get is going to make them a little bit more complex, or at least make the fruit more complex. And that's kind of the goal of a winemaker is to make that grapevine struggle and produce whatever it can with whatever power it has and make the best wine it can. <laughs> it's a balance. It's all about balance. You, you can't give something too much nutrients or too much food or else it'll overproduce. If you give it too little, it'll die. You want to find a balance between that, between too much and too little, and then you'll have something that's perfect. So how many acres do you have in Sonoida, out of curiosity? Uh, I have 27 acres uh of which none are planted yet, but it's coming. Uh, right now we have a tasting room, an outdoor tasting room that's under a canopy with unobstructed views of the biscuit and uh, eastern Sonoida. Actually, unobstructed views all around. And on the future plans, uh, right now we're building a winery, which will be done by the middle of summer for sure. And beyond there, um, after we start making some money, I can I can justify spending some money <laughs> on planting some grapes and making some Sonoida wines. What would you say are the top, eh, let's go with top six grapes you want to plant in your Sonoida site? Uh, top, sips, uh, top six grapes in Sonoida. Uh, that you want to plant. That's a hard one. I've still been waiting because Arizona right now is a tumultuous place. You know, There's people planting Tanat, people planting Petit Verdot, people planting Petit Syrah, people planting Syrah, people, people planting Viognier, people planting Malvasia, people planting Tanat. I don't know. 
Lots of things. I probably said one of them twice, but to not. Yeah, to not but twice. it's okay. We like to not. That's all right. People are planting everything. The reality is, uh, you have to plant what's right for the place. I think Petit Verdot is probably a good one. Uh, it does. I, I every Petit Verdot I've had from Sonoida has been stellar, and I would definitely agree that that's a major grape for Sonoida. It'll Hands definitely. Down. It'll definitely be my hard. You know, rowdy grape, uh, Petit Frodo. So a little bit of that. I like Petit Frodo. It's a good grape. I would really love to do some Syrah because it's my favorite grape. And you know, to make it work on that limestone-based soil would be awesome. It's just going to take a little bit of work and a little bit of trial and error. So we'll see. Uh, the particular property where I grow grapes is a little bit more limestone-rich than other properties in Sonoidas. So we're going to have to see how that compares to other ones. But regardless, uh, Syrah, Petit Ferdot, uh, Malvasia is a great grape here in Wilcox. It'll be interesting to try it in Sonoida and see what it does. Graciano, I think maybe a little bit. I'd like to try that out, see how it goes. I have a very good recommendation from Kent, uh, Kent Callahan on Graciano, and uh, I cannot just go past that. I uh, need to plant some of that for that reason. You know, it's all about just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work in it might not be the perfect grape from the beginning, but we'll just have to look at it and see and evaluate it in a couple of years and, and go from there. Now, is there any grapes that aren't being grown in Arizona yet that you think should be tried? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, grapes not being grown in Arizona yet that should be tried. Uh, you know, I think in Arizona we grow a lot of different grapes. There's, I think you can see every single grape you want to see in Arizona. It grown at least somewhere. Now, is it grown properly or is it grown in the right climate for where it should be grown? That's another question. But can you match the right grape to the right climate and the right terroir? Uh, that's, that's a real question. Can you match it? If you can match the right grape to the right place, you've got a gold mine. And we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, as far as grapes that I would like to see grown here more, I would love to see. Well, actually, let's let's switch, switch that around. Let's let's say let's try to find places where we could grow grapes where there's no grapes yet. Um, places that would be great with grapes. Uh, one place I would say that would be great with grapes is Portal, which is on the eastern side of the Chiricahua Mountains, and it's. Uh, you know, with the eastern-facing slopes, it's going to have less sunlight damage in the late afternoons. Uh, elevations the same as Wilcox or Sonoida. Water is easily available. It might make a unique place to grow grapes and uh, grow make wine. I know there's one winery, or rather there's one vineyard there. Glomsky has the Calibri Vineyard um, in Paradise, which is near Portal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that that is a no-brainer area. I would like to see more there. I think Chino Valley is another great area. Um, I think the Williamson Valley near Seligman would probably also be a good place. Uh, more for Burgundian varietals, cold-weather varietals, hybrids. The only hybrid I will ever poo-poo entirely is Concord, because that grape is only good for jam. Um, period. Um, but I, I like this idea. We need to get more grapes in more places. Well, the problem with Arizona is there's only so much water, and we all draw on groundwater for everything we do agriculturally. And it would be awesome if we could do it through springs or rivers or you know surface water, but we just can't. We have to do it through, uh, through groundwater. And it's a huge issue now as we're entering into maturity across the world. Um, 
not just Arizona, but you know, California and the entire United States, we're, we're starting to feel feel the effects of pumping our groundwater and limited resources that come from that. But you know, there's things like like Sligman would be a great place to grow grapes, but it's on the Colorado Plateau and there's no water there. It's, just, it's hard to get water. It's hard to grow. Uh, the elevation's right. The microclimate's right. We we can make some great grapes there, but there's just no resources there to support it. Uh, Wilcox is good because we have a lot of resources here. There's a lot of water. It's plentiful. But there's also people growing corn here. There's also people growing cotton here. There's people growing things here that are not sustainable. And it's not going to last for a long time. You know, it's not sustainable. It will not be here forever. Uh, even though the grapes might be. We can dig deeper. We can we can do things efficiently. But what's here now is not necessarily that way. Portal is an untapped resource. Uh, there's nothing out there yet. It's out in the middle of nowhere between New Mexico and Arizona. It's a place you would probably never venture to. Uh, so subsequently, there, the groundwater there is still fine and untapped. Uh, it's, it's a good place to start growing. Sonoida uh, is a great place. There's no f- commercial farming there, just ranching, which has lots of water still available. To be honest, the the only key holding back Arizona the only Arizona wine industry right now is water, and that's going to be the biggest thing going forth. On that note, um, in Europe and, and other areas, we hear about places that are doing dry farming. Um, why is no one attempting that here in Arizona, or is it just that that what we what is known as dry farming still requires more precipitation than what falls from the sky on a regular basis here? I think certain soils in Arizona could do dry farming with certain grapes, uh, like for instance in Sonoida. Talking about Sonoida earlier, there's a lot of limestone, which is like a sponge. It soaks up the grapes. Burgundy is dry farmed. Burgundy has limestone soils. The limestone soaks up water, and that's one of the reasons why it's great for that, because it is a sponge. It's an underground sponge that soaks up water. Now, the only problem is we get a lot of our water in monsoon season, which is the ripening season, which is perfect, as long as it's not too much. But if we had more rain in the spring season, which is statistically one of our driest times of the year, we'd be fine. If we had more rain in spring, we'd be fine, but we don't. We are very dry during spring, so the freshly budded plants cannot have enough water or nutrients to get themselves on their own through the growing season. So if if May and June, and maybe early July or late April, had more water, we'd be fine the dry farm. But it's just not possible with what with the current climate that we have now. So going back to um, the rune, these labels, by the way, are freaking awesome. Yeah, if we could go into the labels just because... The one right now in front of me has already distracted me to the point of attention <laughs> deficit shiny, even here in the in the darkened room where we're drinking. Yeah, labels. <laughs> well, the labels, yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a good friend of mine who's been with me for the last five or six years named Daniel Helzer, and he's the artist. No one's asked the guy's name. No one has asked. Most people just ask, did you do the artwork? I said no. Uh, but it's Daniel's time. Daniel did the artwork. Uh, he's a great man. Smart guy. He works for the video, ga- video game industry in Reno, Nevada. And when I say video game, I mean uh, gaming industry. You know, He works for casino games, does the graphic design for them, as well as other things. But he paints every day, and he draws every day. And I came across his portfolio online and found a guy that just you know did artwork every day and realized, hey, this is someone I want with my brand you know someone that's passionate about what they do and he said yeah you know i'd be happy to help you because he was sketching every day i'm like hey how about you sketch some stuff for me (laughs) every day he's like okay 
So we started sketching and uh, sent me a few rough drafts and everything looked really great. And, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for him and for me to have something that's really unique and uh, special to not only Arizona wine, but wine in general. And I've served wine for many years and been around the sales aspect of the industry. And people need something that, you know, you can spend $40 on a bottle of wine and what do you get? You know, you get a bottle of wine. But if you get something that's collectible, something that's interesting, it makes it so much more valuable. And that's kind of what I'm going after. I'm going after something that's really fantastic to taste, something that's fantastic. It's a unique experience, but yet it's not plentiful. Something that must be purchased now or else will forever be gone. And that's kind of the uh, the angle I'm taking. And uh, the angle my artist has kind of tried to put forth with the labels. <laughs> So is there going to be a different label for all the wines every year? Every year. Every varietal, every vineyard, every combination there so up there so uh, will be a different label, different character, different art. Will you be able to put these labels together and tell a story? Indeed. <laughs> I'm not sure how exactly it's going to evolve from now. Just like any writer, I think, you don't have an idea of how it's going to start and finish from the beginning. You, you keep evolving the storyline as life goes on, and that's what you do. <laughs> So for our listeners, what do you have, uh, or why I should say, what are you serving in the tasting room currently, or the tasting canopy? <laughs> At the canopy right now. It makes it sound a lot more panache, <laughs> I think, actually. Everyone else has tasting rooms. You have a tasting canopy. <laughs> right now we have a canopy. Foregoing any negative weather days, such as rain or hail, I think we can serve you a rosé, which is a saunier off of our Grenache Syrah Mubedra, our red grapes. We have a Viognier, which is a native yeast fermented Viognier, uh, partially native yeast, I should say, with a couple barrels of commercial yeast, one with a Riesling yeast, one with a Chardonnay yeast, with a mixture of neutral oak and stainless steel, which creates a very interesting, a unique wine with a luscious mouthfeel and vibrant acidity and fruit. Then we have a Chardonnay, which is, you know, more of the California style with a little bit more of an oak presence and partial mild lactic fermentation which is buttery, but not yet ridiculously buttery. It's it's still crisp. It's a, it's a lovely wine. Beyond that, we have a Grenache, which is a blend of Grenache, Mouvedre, and Syrah, which is light, but very earthy. It has a lovely undertone to it. Unlike the 2014 grapes, uh, this 2013 Grenache has a lot, of, a lot of earth, a lot of rustic character to it, almost reminiscent of the Chateauneuf de Pop. And beyond that, we have two Syrahs. Both are dueling each other. We have a classic Syrah and a wild Syrah. Classic Syrah is made in the style that is unctuous, herbal, full-bodied. This whole cluster fermentation in there. It's commercial yeast. It's lovely. It's it's rich. It's strong. And then we have the wild Syrah on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is more feminine in nature. It's fragrant. It's violets and you know bacon fat it's lovely it's it's genuine it's a dancer whereas the classic syrah is a brute and both have their own place but yet they're both uniquely interesting and those are our wines which um you know going back to labels the classic syrah has the roman soldier on it you know giving grapes to the people or giving grapes to the people mm-hmm. yes giving grapes to the people and examining then, the grapes examining the grapes Yes, this meets with Caesar's approval. Um, and then the Wild Syrah is this really cool label where you've got a ga- uh, Gaulish 
Gaulish warrior basically defending his harvest from this invading Roman army. It's just really cool to see those two labels side by side. Like you, I'm a history nerd, so I see that. It's like, ah! This is amazing. Um, going back to the wild Syrah and how you're wild fermenting reds, uh, could you go into that process a little bit? For sure. Okay. So fermenting wet reds is a very dangerous aspect of winemaking because you have a pH to start. Well, the way we like to make wine with Rune is we make wine with pHs above 3.9. And that's for Syrah, Mouvedre, Grenache, Rhone varietals. Which, if you, worked at, if you went to school at Davis, you would probably be like, what the hell? This guy's crazy. He's a loony, right? What the hell is he doing? But what we do here is we practice intense sanitation. You know, we're a small production winery, so we can make sure things are really clean. Make sure things don't get spoiled with negative bacteria or virus, whatever might encounter the wine. So the process is we take a little bit of white grapes, which we use for co-ferments with our Syrahs, which have a lower pH, higher acidity, and are much more sterile. For a native yeast fermentation so we'll start those up let them rock and roll on their own for a few days before fermentation in the sun and then after we pick the red grapes we'll dump the buckets in of the white grapes that are already going and then you're like it's like adding a turbocharger to <laughs> adding a turbocharger to something that's already been going uh it, something that's you know just sounds starting like you're like turbocharging it it's uh it's interesting so we add this raging yeasty white grape mixture to this red ferment which is dormant and it explodes and then it starts raging and going and extracting and creates what we make and that's how we do our native yeast red wine fermentations and then the whites it's you just similar thing you let it sit in the sun the whites no no sun we just let it we just pump the juice to barrel and let mother nature do its thing it's very simple you know with the red wines we have to be more careful because the ph is higher uh, with the white wines, we have to be just make sure that things are cold and things are kept within the temperature uh, that they should be, and things are progressing normally with tasting and smelling. Red wines are definitely more more difficult. Uh, things can go wrong a lot easier. White wines are a little bit easier. To... What's your favorite grape to work with? Syrah. I wow. think. <laughs> Sorry. Bar none. Syrah. Uh, Syrah shows so much personality if it's fruit forward if it's commercial yeast if it's intense you know it has one character if it's earthy if it's dense if it's you know rustic it has another character and it shows everything in between it grows perfectly here in arizona and it really is a balanced um it's a balance it's a very balanced varietal it shows a lot of character uh despite you know it it, it shows where it's from that's that's the most important point is it shows where it's from you know if it's from wilcox it'll taste like wilcox if it's from calibri it'll taste like calibri it has a body and depth to stand up to the harsh uv sunrise here in in the high altitude uh, growing regions this is a fantastic grape it it tastes great was that your favorite cody uh yeah the uh (laughs) we were doing a barrel tasting earlier and Prob- no, definitely my favorite was the Malvasia uh, Syrah co-ferment. It was, it was like sex, except I was having it. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite Futurama lines, and it just works in so many situations. But yeah, it, was, it definitely knocked my socks. Two of my favorite grapes right there, together hanging out. Uh, sort of having a threesome, because 
Uh, long-time readers of my blog know that I view Syrah as also being incredibly feminine, kind of like your classic pinup model. And we all know that Malvasia is your tall, blonde, hippie in the flowy skirts with sad tattoos. Dancing atop a mountaintop with a white white dress with yeah. flowers in her hair. Exactly. Ah. So it's, you know, essentially a threesome with you, the pinup model, and the, you know, quasi-Galadriel on the mountain, so to speak. Where do you think uh, Arizona wine should go from here? Well, way to put me on the spot. I was going to ask you actually a very <laughs> similar question. So I'll answer this if you answer this. No, you answer it first. Well, answer. yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you answer. No, you answer. <laughs> um, I definitely think that one of the things that Arizona needs to focus on that we do well is rosé. Because rosé in Arizona, I have not had a bad one. Let me rephrase that. I have only had one bad that I would consider bad, Arizona Dry Rosé. Um, it's something that we do well. It's something that's easy to do, oh, either whether you're, whether you're doing it the maceration style or if you're simply doing it saunier. There you go. Your rosé is done. I think we, have, we should experiment with other varietals here that aren't normally made into rosé. Um, I'm gunning for the weirdest of weird things, which would be a Petit Verdot Rosé. Um, just because I think that would be so heavy and so good, and it would be a Rosé that you could have with a steak. Um, which if you're in the middle of summer in Phoenix, or even here, or Verde Valley... Sounds fucking fantastic. You need something lighter, and you don't want that heavy red, but a heavy Petit Verdot-based Rosé is a no-brainer. Definitely. Um, for that. I mean, for me anyway. Um, so I think we should focus on that. I think we should also focus on trying to nail down varietals and where to grow them. Um, like you were saying, Rhone varietals here and Malvasia here seems to be a no-brainer for Wilcox. Sangiovese seems to do well anywhere it's put, except for Fort Bowie. Um, Shannon does really great at Fort Bowie. We need to... Focus on Chenin Blanc at Fort Bowie, for sure. That needs to be... That and maybe other Loire Valley originate varietals at Fort Bowie. More Wilcox, Chenin Blanc. Yeah, or all of the Chenin Blanc. <laughs> yeah. Although, wasn't Cab Franc originally a Loire varietal, too? I think so. Actually, no, it's... uh, Well... I mean, I know yeah. it's mostly Bordeaux now, but... Definitely, yeah. Not that's, It's Chenin is the primary label under Cab Franc. In France, but to be honest, uh, here in Arizona, we Cab Franca is a non-existent varietal here in Arizona. Well, uh, and uh, there for are the some most out part, there. Um, yeah, Saculum, oh, good God, Saculum. I think we need more. With what yes. I'm saying, and uh, we need more. I'm agreeing with you. We need more. I'd like to also see more Carmenera grown. Definitely. Um, I know up at uh, Rio Vineyards, and I missed this wine, unfortunately. Um, he did a Carmenera that just apparently just like. Everyone drank it all up in like four months after it was released. I'd like to see more Carmenera. Malbec, I'm really interested to see what the Asmonsons do with Malbec here um, because it seems like a no brainer. It definitely has the marketability. Um, but you could have a super complex, like six Bordeaux grape blend here in Wilcox. Sonoida, I feel. Um, I like Sonoida wines. They're all very interesting to me because along with the earthy and dust that you get with the reds, there's always this tangerine note. Um, so, you know, but again, as for what varietals grow there, it seems to be Petit Verdot is best there. Um, for whites, I don't really know. 
Um, Ferdy Valley, it's still wild card, still early now. Chino, weirdly enough, even though it's one of the youngest wine regions, it's already pretty nailed down. Hybrids and colder Burgundy. climate grapes, yeah, exactly. Burgundy hybrids. That would be where you would do a great Gewurztraminer. That'd be where Damn you could straight. do a Riesling yeah. or Grunewaldiner. Pinot Meunier. I want to see Pinot Meunier in Chino Valley. I want to see Saparavi, which is one of my favorite grapes everywhere. Um, because that is a grape that seems tailor-made, on paper at least, so, for Arizona. Cody, in your life with Arizona wine uh, so far, what are the what are the imbalances that you see? Like, what needs to be improved upon to make it better and uh, more, more global? Like, make it more globally recognized. Like, what do we have to do? I think we need to set some standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, focusing on planting more in areas with American viticultural areas, which for now is only Sonoida, um, word I've heard on the grapevine, haha, <laughs> pun intended, um, is that Wilcox is going to become an AVA soon, along with the Chiricahua Mountains. Chiricahua Foothills. Chiricahua Foothills, excuse me. <laughs> um, I think we need to focus on establishing the fact that we are serious. Having AVAs would at least give us legitimacy in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be more vocal. We need to be introducing ourselves more in international competitions. I think we need to start maybe, on paper at least, submitting competitions, wines to competitions in California. Mm-hmm. Because this is what allowed California to take off when it went head-to-head with France and beat it at its own game. Damn straight. Um, possibly Arizona needs to do that in the next 30 years. I don't think we're ready for that yet. We could do it with some of our wines, but the thing is we don't have the capacity to meet that sudden influx of demand. We need to build up our strength first before we take the world by storm. It's already starting to happen. People are coming in taking notice. In the tasting room, and um, when I was working in the tasting room in Passion about six months ago, there was a woman from Langdoc who worked as a major distributor for one of the Langdoc wineries. And she was driving across Crunchy um, from New York to California, tasting wines from at least three different wineries in every state that she was in. Uh, and her words, Arizona was the first place she had wine that she could drink. <laughs> That's great. Um, and for some someone who's working in the French industry, and the French are very, very, very finicky about their wines. Um, yeah, Languedoc is not as widely known a region, but it's still producing great stuff. Um, for someone from France to say that, that's that's huge. Um, I've had a few. Italian tourists talking about Arizona Malvasia Bianca and saying that it's better than the Malvasia <laughs> where they're from. And that seems like a no-brainer. We need to focus on the grapes that we know we can do best um, as well in that sense. I mean, yes, we need to continue experimenting, but we also need to focus. Interesting, I think, is, is worthy and best is worthy. But yeah. things that can be done uniquely. Agreed. We need but to... goodly. Good. <laughs> Not goodly, but good. And here's the, another thing about Arizona. We need to focus on expressing our terroir, which is what exactly. I like about Arizona wines compared to California. California sacrificed terroir for the market. For sales. Exactly. For sales. Arizona I'm cannot Chardonnay. make it. I'm going to make a Cabernet Sauvignon. I'm going to make this. You know. Yeah, it's the same. You no can... one buys Syrah. You, went, you, go, you go back three or four years, Syrah was an there's a whole thing was like people like uh, all the winemakers love Syrah, but yet no one's buying it. Why yeah. is no one buying Syrah? You know, why is no one buying Malvasia? Why is no one buying? Because you know, people don't know about them yet. Exactly. We need to get this out there, which is actually why I started this whole blog in the first place. Is trying to get Arizona wine noted to a worldwide audience. Whether I've been any successful, had any success with that or not, I don't know. Time will tell. I mean, I fully expect that I will be a footnote, if that. 
Um, and that's something I'm very comfortable with. You know, I don't like fame. I like kind of working in the shadows and being like, <laughs> I'm Batman, except I review wine. This no. wine is great. Drink it. We love um, the shadows. Yes. You know, and, and I think that Arizona's strength is in the shadows right now. We're a we wild are. card. No one really knows about us. We can come out when we're ready and be like, hey, guys, sup. By the way, we make great wine. And everyone's going to be like, <gasps> gasp. And yeah. So you, where do you want the Arizona industry to go in the next 20 years since you asked me that question that I was oh, going to shit. ask you? I just, uh, I just ruined the, I just spoiled the surprise. I really like the way you're going with your vision. Uh, you know, Arizona needs to be a, a dark horse. We need to be the dark horse. We're not a Oregon. We're not a Washington. We're not even a California or a New York. You know, we are a dark horse. We are producing something that's unique and special and it needs to be treated that way. It can't be treated like mainstream, uh, you know, corporate America shit coming out of Washington or California or Oregon. You know, we are the next place to be. There's no corporate investment here. We are mom and pops. We're making things that are unique and genuine. Uh, right now is the artistry time of this industry. and It's the golden age. It's the golden age. Uh, this is when you need to taste things and realize what you're tasting and say, this is something that's not ever going to be the same as what it is because people are experimenting now. They're doing things right now that are unique. And 10 years from now, it's not going to be the same. So these are the times to buy and times to experiment and times to look. And it's uh, it's important to taste and try and see what's going on from all the vintners and uh, understand what they're doing, what, what they're doing to make things better. Everyone here is trying to make things better. Everyone's pushing the limits every year. And it's a, it's a great time to be following what people are doing here. One more thought I had. Um, I do feel that one of the aspects potentially in the future, again, continuing the ensemble dark horse of Arizona, <laughs> um, if things continue to deteriorate in Syria and Lebanon, and even in Turkey, I think we will start to see winemakers from those regions come to Arizona. And the reason being is because the climate here is so similar to those regions. Hmm. In a blind tasting, for example, it is almost impossible for me to tell apart a Lebanese Syrah from the Becca Valley from something from the Verde Valley. It's so similar in terms of Pilar, and I think that here's places that have had 3,000 plus years of experience with winemaking, making wine, yeah. growing wine, fleeing. Where are they going to go? Well, yeah, maybe they'll go to France, whatever, but I think that the ones that are really have their eyes out and looking for places very similar to home are going to come here to Arizona and New Mexico. And we need to be ready to welcome these people with open arms. They might be bringing stuff that otherwise would become extinct in their homeland, like Obade and a few other traditional Turkish and Lebanese varietals that are found nowhere else in the world, which may also grow well here. One of the most beautiful things about Arizona, well, despite the fact that you can go to Tucson and taste wines from Lebanon, which is fantastic, which is a few miles away from here. Uh, but besides that, one of the most beautiful things about Arizona winemaking is that you can do what you want. You can live your dream affordably. Uh, there's still land out there that is perfect for grapes, with water, with everything you need, at a decent price, under three or four, under two grand an acre even. You can find land for 500 bucks an acre if you want uh, that's perfect for grapes. And it's 
it's a great place to go out there if you're young and you're new and you want to have your own winery one day. You want to do something your own way. You know, it's a great place to do it and make it work because it can happen. You're not in California. You're not paying thirty grand an acre. You're not getting ripped off by some other person who's making money on you. You're, you can go out here and you can find a piece of land. You can find a place with water and you can do it affordably. And you can make it a, a business. There's people here. The industry's growing. It's fantastic. And uh, it's not going to last forever. You know, eventually the secret's going to get out and you're going to be out, out of your share. But right now, it's on fire. So you better look and understand and, and realize what you want to do. Uh, if it is what you want to do. And that's what's great about Arizona. Now, going back to Lebanon and the Middle East, it's a warm climate here. We have lots of great varietal characteristics uh, for, not, not varietal characteristics, sorry, uh, terroir characteristics for warm climate grapes. Uh, and there's many places for people to make wine here that enjoy warmer climate grapes. And it's just a matter of time until, you know, those, those specific grapes to Lebanon and the Middle East become more prevalent here. Because I think they do well, really well, uh, just like some of the Southern Rhone varietals have done, and, and the Spanish varietals as well. So, last question for me, or to you, for me, um, unless you want to throw me another wild curveball, <laughs> which is actually kind of awesome. I might. Um, if you were a grape, what grape would you be and why? Hmm. Interesting question. <sighs> hmm. We talk about grapes. Uh, we talk about grapes as being... We personify grapes, Cody and I, <laughs> uh, over the evening and, uh, you know, over Facebook as well. What grape to be? That's an interesting question. And there's a veritable font of grapes out there. And how can you discern yourself upon one? That's a difficult question. But for me, you know, it's uh, probably predictable. But I, I, I think it was Syrah. And I, I know it's predictable. It sucks. But, you know... <laughs> It's truth. Uh, I'm a round, interesting person that enjoys and entertains every single aspect of the human nature. You know, I'll read everything, I'll do everything, and experience everything. And uh, to me, Syrah does the same thing. You know, it encompasses everything of the grape varietal. That it represents, you know, it's it's round, full-bodied, long finish. It's aromatic. It can be whatever it wants to be, and uh, to me, I can see myself being that more than either, more than any other thing. Uh, despite working with many other varietals, it's uh, definitely Syrah. Excellent. <laughs> Indeed, I've always been. <laughs> And the more people who tell me I'm to not, the more I'm, I, I totally agree with it because you know, I, I can be a little acerbic and tannic and difficult to get to know. <laughs> but once you get to know a to not, you're going to love it, generally, unless it's 
Rancid. <laughs> Rancid. Or if it, our last tasting panel in Tanam was any indication from Uruguay, that was the only one we, none of them, no one liked that one, weirdly enough. Um, it's a grape that goes well in blends. It's a grape that grows great on its own. It's, again, kind of, a, again, an ensemble dark horse grape. Um, we need more Tanat in Arizona, hands down. We need more Tanat, we need more Petit Verdot. Those are no-brainer grapes here, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I, the more I think about me being a Tanat, the more I think that, yeah, this is actually the case. But I, of course, I also held the poll of all of my friends in the Verde Valley wine industry. It's like, tell me what grape you think I am Tanat. Came out on top. While I was talking to Cody earlier, I said one thing about Arizona grapes is that the thicker skinned grapes do better. And that's because our water here is so scarce and we can't irrigate as much as we would like to sometimes. And canopy, canopy does not grow as much as it should. And with that being said, the grapes that can withstand the UV rays and the grapes that can withstand the sun tend to do better and that those are the ones that are thicker skin like Tanat and, and Petit Syrah Petit Ferdo. and uh, I think it's just natural for our environment you know it's like if you're if you were to dry farm things here everything would not live so it's interesting that uh, that it's come down to the thicker skin varietals as being you know the, the most sustainable for the Wilcox area I think you know Syrah Grenache Oh, not Grenache, sorry. Syrah, Petit Ferdot, uh, Petit Syrah as well. Malvasia actually has a pretty thick skin for white, too. For sure. For whites, as far as whites are concerned, Malvasia Viennier, definitely a thick skin. <laughs> Picked early, too, but uh, they can withstand. Well, gang, I think we're going to drink some more wine and leave you guys... <laughs> To enjoy your evening or afternoon or day in peace. Um, until next time, uh, this is Cody. James. And James. I've had a lot of beer and wine. Wow. <laughs> Slow clap. Um, this is Cody and James signing off. You guys have a great evening. Chin chin.